Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. And today, we're going to talk race, identity, and diversity, as I am joined by author and race, identity, and diversity expert, Michael Fosberg. Michael has spoken to several companies to help them change the way that they look at race, identity, and diversity. He uses his autobiographical lifestyle as a one-man play to foster that. So, Michael, Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you, Curtis. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, Do we want to start with the big story or do we just want to start with generalities? (laughs) We'll start how, however, maybe we'll start off general, then we'll, then we'll get into it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm here in Chicago based out of Chicago and I've been resident here for, oh my gosh, many years now. I was raised just north of Chicago in, in, in a small suburb by the town called Waukegan and have lived in other places in the country, lived out in Los Angeles for a long time. And I originally uh, set out to uh, be an actor and a writer and a teacher and a director. And, and then in the last 15 or so years, I've utilized my talents in those areas to become, as you mentioned, an expert on diversity equity inclusion, utilizing my own story as a, as a means to facilitate conversations around those subjects. Um, yeah, that's a good place to start. <laughs> well, tell us how you do that because you have a unique way of doing that and, and you've spoken to a lot of people and, and a lot of different companies and high schools and colleges and all that good stuff. Right, right. Well, as I mentioned, I, I use the arts as a means to have these conversations, and I use my own personal story in the form of a one-man play to to be the catalyst for those conversations. And so I guess now might be the time to let you, to tell your listeners about my particular life story. So I was raised in a working-class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago, as I mentioned, a little town called Waukegan. And I was raised by my biological mother, who was of Armenian descent, and an adoptive stepfather, who was of Swedish descent. And when I was in my early 30s, they sort of unceremoniously announced that they were getting a divorce. And I realized at that time that I didn't know anything about my biological father. Um, my mom had never told me any information about him. I never actually asked any questions. At the time, I was when I got this information about my parents' divorce, I was living with a British girlfriend in Santa Monica, California, and I was very angry with my mother about the divorce. I, I guess I blamed, I blamed my mother for the divorce, and so uh, I told my girlfriend about this situation. And I told her how angry I was with my mother. And she said, no, no, you have an opportunity here to, you know, to find out more about your father. I mean, 
he may still be out there. Your anger might be misplaced. Your anger might be about your biological father, not your divorce between your parents. And I was like, wow, okay. And she said, you should ask your mom some questions. And so I, I called my mom and sort of apologized for my anger lashing out at her. And she gave me a couple of bits of information. She told me my biological father's name, which was John Sidney Woods. And she told me that um, the last time she had spoken with him, which was some 30 years prior to this, that uh, she thinks he lived in the Detroit area. And that was really kind of it. I mean, she told me that, you know, they were very poor. They had no money. They were living in Boston. Um, She got pregnant when she was in school, in college, and she ended up dropping out. And uh, actually, she flew to California to have me, but her initial plan was to give me up for adoption. But once she got out there and she had me, she realized she couldn't do that. And so she went back and uh, went back to Boston and got married to my father. And we lived there for a few years and then their relationship fell apart. So I, uh, having just the really those two bits of information, his name and the last place that he may have lived some 30 years ago in Detroit, I decided that I was going to uh, try to find him. And so armed with those pieces of information, I went, I went to the library. As some of your listeners may know that libraries used to have a thing called phone books, if anybody remembers those. Some libraries would you know, carry phone books from major cities around the country, and I was hoping that that was the case. So I went to the reference section at the Santa Monica Public Library, and they indeed had a Detroit phone book. And I looked up his name, and there were about five or six listings. And I copied down all the names and numbers, and I went home, and I lived in a tiny, tiny apartment. It was, you know, it was like a size of a walk-in closet. And I was pacing back and forth, the two steps back and three steps forth and and just nervous because I didn't know what to do now. I had this information. I didn't even know. I mean, what are the chances that one of these names or numbers are going to be him? Who knows? So I finally got the courage and thought about, you know, well, what, what could I ask if I got someone on the phone? And I got the courage and I picked up the phone and I dialed the first number on the list for a John Sidney Woods and a guy answered the phone. And I said, I'm looking for a John Sidney Woods. And he said, you're speaking with him. And I thought, oh, no, well, it can't be that easy. There, there are more than one John Sidney Woods. I don't know what, you know, what, who knew what's going on here. And so I said, well, did you live in the Boston area in 1957? Because that's where I lived with my parents um, when I was born, right after I was born. And uh, he said, yes, I did. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's too, it's too incredible that this couldn't be. And I said, well, were you married to a woman by the name of Adrian Pilibosian? That was my mother's Armenian maiden name. And he paused. It seemed like he paused for hours, but it was just a few seconds. And he said, yes, I was. And I realized that I had tracked my father down in a first phone call after 30 years. And I was you know, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I I was scared. I immediately, I thought about stories that I'd heard about. I'd heard stories, I don't know, on the news or in documentaries or whatever about people had tracked down their biological parent and then the parent didn't want to have anything to do with them and how difficult that was for both people. And I didn't want to, I didn't want him to feel like I 
you know, wanted anything from him and I was nervous and I just, I kind of blurted out, it's okay if you don't want to talk to me. I just wanted to call and find out how you're doing and let you know I was doing okay. And he said, no, my God, son, how are you? Where are you? I tell you, when he said the word son to me, I just, I just melted. And, uh, and then we tried to, you know, talk to one another, wrap our heads around 30 years missing. You know, you're, I'm your son. You're my dad. How, what do we talk about? What, what do we say? What's, you know, I didn't know what to say. And, and, and then after a little while, he said, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, well, okay. Aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else could there be? And he said, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you. And I've thought about you a lot. And I, I was just, I was beside myself. It was my father telling me for the first time in my memory that he loved me. I was so touched. And then he said, you know, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. And, uh, I remember I was standing in that little room, my, which was my entire apartment. There was, there was a full length mirror on one wall of the room. And I sort of caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. And I sort of, I, I just re- kind of remember checking myself out like, wait, did I just change? Am I, what, what just happened here? And, and then he proceeded to say, you know, tell me about my, my family history. And he said, you're, you're great great-grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. Your great-grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. And your grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University are named after him. And again, I remember just standing there. I was just absolutely dazed by all this information. I was kind of like in a it's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we get back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part. And it was just incredible. And 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 my grandparents were still alive, he said, and they're living in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And we talked for some more, and then we swore that we'd stay in touch. And, uh, and then we hung up the phone. And that's kind of my story in a nutshell. I, I, I eventually... My grandparents who are still alive, I went to visit them in Virginia Beach, and, and then my father came there and, and met us there, and um, uh, and we had this reunion, and um, and then I found myself, I guess it was maybe a year later, I was on Martha's Vineyard, and I, I met a second cousin of mine uh, who had a summer home there, and it was just a phenomenal experience and just a you know a, a life-changing experience for me and so this story that i just related to you to your listeners i tell that story playing over a dozen different characters in the course of about an hour it's about 50 minutes and i acted out and playing all the different characters for the audience and i i was trained again as a as an actor as a writer as a director a teacher and um, we opened the show uh, back in 2001, actually, in October of 2001. It'll be 21 years this month. Uh, and and the reception was incredible. People were just, it was amazing. The press was amazing. I couldn't have, I couldn't have paid people <laughs> to write better reviews of the play. It was just phenomenal. And we ran for a really long time. And then we had other invitations to take the show to a couple of other theaters and what I noticed right off the bat, right immediately, was people would approach me after the show uh, and ask me questions. 
some were of a personal nature, but more of the questions were a, a nature of like, well, what, what box do you check off now on applications and why is race important and why aren't we talking about it or why are we or aren't we or whatever. And this got confirmed and solidified. I, I did a show for a, a group of high school students, a bunch of students who were studying theater on the campus of Northwestern University one summer. I think it was the summer of 2004. And after the show, I stayed to answer questions for the theater students. And instead of asking me questions about the theatrical nature of the play, they were asking me these questions about how do you fit in and what box do you check off? And why don't we talk about race and all these questions? And I realized how powerful the play was in terms of speaking about race and identity. And it resonated really powerfully with young people. And I'd seen it resonate with adults as well. And so after I did the talkback session with the students that day at Northwestern, some of the students approached me and said, you know, would you come and do this play? Would you do your play at my high school? Um, these were, again, theater students who were studying at Northwestern. They weren't college students. It was a summer program for high school students. And they were from high schools from all across the country. And they approached me and said, you know, would you come and do your show at, at my high school? And I thought, well, why would I want to do that? And then I started thinking, well, wait a minute, if I could do the show and then engage people in this conversation that we just had, this rich conversation about race and identity, that would be just a phenomenal thing to be able to open people up to have these difficult, awkward conversations. And so I think the first year I did a half a dozen schools and then the next year I doubled that, the next year I doubled that number. And then somebody introduced me to an agency that represented people in the college market. And so I started touring colleges with the show. And all along the way, I started to discover things about the play, about how to talk about it, about how to unpack it. I I read everything I could get my hands on so that I could talk about it in a really intelligent way. And I could learn more about, about this field. I, I discovered this, this, this space, I guess it's called, or this field called the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And I started to brand it as a diversity, equity, and inclusion tool for people to have, you know, these rich conversations. And one thing led to another and I was at a I was at a business college one night and there were a bunch of people from some corporations in the area and then they came up to me afterwards after the show after the dialogue and said you know would you come and do this for our teams for our employees and I thought oh man absolutely and so then I got into the corporate market and then uh, I don't know somehow I met someone from the government and I started you know talking to people about doing some shows for the government I've done presentations for the Department of Homeland Security and for ICE and for the Department of Treasury and for the Social Security Administration. And, and then it just kept snowballing. It just kept growing and growing. And, and as again, as I've gone along this journey, it's been 15 years now, I have been continually learning about, you know, again, how to talk about it in a way that can help people have more enriching, more authentic conversations about race and identity. And um, that's, that's how my personal story grew into my profession, I guess. That's definitely an amazing story. Explain to everybody what diversity and inclusion training is and why it is so important. Sure. Well, it's actually a little bit controversial right now, <laughs> which it shouldn't be. Uh, so most workplaces and educational institutions are lacking in what we consider diversity. And diversity is... Um, Diverse, the word diversity means all, all inclusive. And so 
it means that that the room is the room or the environment wherever you are is filled with a wide variety of people so and i'm not just talking about racially but also um sexual orientations and age and disabilities and intellectual and religious thoughts and so we want to create an environment where everyone can feel like they can be at a part of it so whether it's black white asian hispanic gay straight catholics jewish muslim uh, people with disabilities disabled or not we want to be able to create an environment where everyone is welcomed in that environment and the inclusive part is that everyone feels as if they are included in the conversation in the workspace in the educational space and um, studies and i you know i don't there's there's been numerous studies that show that the more diverse we are and the more inclusive we are accepting those people for all of their diversity and their thoughts and their beliefs and ideas the better outcomes we have and it's not just on a it's not even just on a small scale it's not like so for instance a, a company that companies that create more diversity in their workforce and are more accepting and being more inclusive of making people feel as if they belong show that they increase their bottom line and that's just the bottom line in terms of the 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 profits that they make by um uh, double digits and that's pretty impressive it for a company but they also show that it sh- that these companies these educational institutions also are more desirable for people to be a part of so people have a better experience working at companies that are more diverse that are more inclusive people have a better experience going to a school that is more diverse and more inclusive and again better educational outcomes come from that and so we i guess ultimately we want to reflect the society in which we live in which we have a wide variety of people and so the diversity equity and inclusion space or field is a field in which there are people like myself and others and people who are in these organizations who are trying to help companies recruit diverse talent um again racially sexual orientation wise age wise disabilities disabled or not and and that way then they also work on trying to make people f- understand how they can get along with one another because obviously if you're coming from a you're coming from a well let's say black and white cultures are very different and so if you haven't had much experience being around black culture you want to make people understand more about black culture so that they're more understanding and accepting of it and and feel more included and inclusive of those people and so the diversity equity inclusion space is one in which is trying to develop that for again for companies for educational institutions i started off this explanation by mentioning that it's a bit controversial and it is right now because there are a faction of people in this country who feel that diversity equity and inclusion is political which it is not it's about people it's about humans it usually falls underneath the hr departments at companies human relations departments human resources departments at companies uh, 
Um, and there are people who feel that it's divisive. And as much as I would suggest that, I guess, acknowledge that there can be trainings and some efforts by diversity trainers, shall we say, that can border on being divisive. That's not the purpose. The purpose, again, is to bring people together and help people work better together. The better we work together, the more we can find things together, the better outcomes we'll have. And in my focus of what I do by sharing my personal story, again, in the form of a one-man play and having a dialogue afterwards, my focus is on what's known in academic circles as a thing called intergroup contact theory. And intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. That is a fact. And so what I'm trying to emphasize in the work that I do and the companies that I work with and the places that I go and visit is this idea of commonalities. We have more in common than we have different. And I'm trying to open people up by telling my story, allowing them to open up and tell their stories. And we discover these commonalities. And then we find that we can create bonds and we can have better outcomes. Tell everybody about your book. Tell listeners what they can expect when they read it and where we can get it from. Sure, sure. So I have two books. Uh, The first book I wrote is about my life story. It's a memoir. It's called Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. It is a much longer version than the play. (laughs) There are a lot of things that happen in my story. I, you know, I just gave your listeners a short synopsis of my life story. And again, I do that in 45 minutes in the play, but my life story actually has many, many twists and turns in it that are equally as amazing as the ones that I just laid out in, in this short period of time here. And so the book, the memoir, Incognito, lays those things out. And it also has photographs of documents and pictures that my grandparents and my family had kept. So I have I have photographs of my Black family going back to the late 1800s. I have photographs of my Armenian family going back to the early 1900s. I have documents, pictures of documents. I, I have in my possession the Negro Leagues contract that my great-grandfather played for the St. Louis Stars dated July 24th, or 13th, 1924. I have the induction papers for my great-great-grandfather into the 54th Regiment of the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War dated 1864. I have that document up on my wall here in my office. Those are included in that book. And and then there are, there are, at the end of the book, there's some questions and dialogue for people who might want to do um, uh, book clubs. And, and so there's some prompts there in the back of the book for people to help people discuss the book and unpack the book. Now, the second book is called Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. And uh, that book was published first book was published in 2011, and the second book was published in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Not a great time to publish a book. But anyway, it is about my travels around the country over, again, 15 years, trying to get people to have conversations about race. 
and how I discovered all these crazy things that people do to either avoid it or misunderstand it or whatever. And so the book is laid out telling all these different stories about traveling around the country and then arriving at a set of tools, seven tools that can help people have more authentic, meaningful conversations about race and identity. And both of those books are available at the website, which is incognitotheplay.com. All one word, incognitotheplay.com. And you can find, you can buy, purchase both of those books there. You can also get them on Amazon, but uh, we encourage you to go to the website to get at the website. So, Well, do you have any current upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? Sure. I I also have a podcast. Uh, I have been fascinated. I started the podcast in the spring of this year. It's called Incognito the Podcast. All That's the whole title, Incognito the Podcast. I've been fascinated by my, you know, these journeys that I've taken. I generally do about 50 or 60 presentations a year. So I travel a lot. I travel to all different kinds of, as I mentioned, all different kinds of places, high schools, colleges, corporations, government agencies, military bases, law firms, realtor associations, all different kinds of places. And one of the things that has fascinated me in this work, again, in this diversity, equity, and inclusion space is that there are, I've discovered there are a lot of people who are who are working in their workspaces, in their workplaces, bringing people together, making people feel as if they're included, if they're as if they're belong belong as if they belong there. And many of these people are not what we would consider diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals. They just call it doing their jobs because they understand the value of having a workplace in which people like to work, where people like to work with one another, people find commonalities amongst one another, and and then they feel like they're included in, in, in the workspace. And so I've been interviewing people from a variety of fields and disciplines to talk to them about what kind of practices, what kind of methods, what kind of ways they use to bring people together. And so each podcast is an interview with someone from a different field, and it allows listeners to take away tools or practices from each podcast that they can use in their own workplace or their community, or perhaps maybe even their families. So again, it's called Incognito the Podcast, and you can find that on any podcast platform that you may use. Okay. So close us out with some final thoughts. Actually, I got a final question for you. Sure. Give, give listeners tips on having challenging conversations in their personal and professional life. Close us out with that question. Sure. Well, I would leave you with the, the tools that I developed again over the years and are laid out in the in the second book. Nobody wants to talk about it. The first tool, and I think it's pretty obvious, is tell your story. Tell your story. It's through our stories that we discover our commonalities. And, 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 and that is, and I don't expect people, to, I don't expect people to like do a one person show. You don't have to do a one person show, but, but tell your story. Everybody has a really fascinating story. I have people come up to me all the time after I do my play and they say, Oh my gosh, your story is so amazing. My story is so boring. I'm like, no, it's not. You have an amazing story and you just need to tell it. And then I have people who come up to me afterwards 
and it opens them up to tell that amazing story. So that's the first tool. Tell your story. Find those commonalities. The second tool is don't judge the differences. Flip the script. Instead of allowing the differences to create a wall between us, start by finding a mutual interest and then embrace the differences. After all, if we were all the same, we'd be bored. It's the differences that make us stand out as people, and it's the differences that make us unique in the marketplace. The third tool that I would suggest for people to use to have good conversations is, this is such an important thing. We have to recognize that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race and identity. If there was one way to do it, we'd all be doing it. It would make it a lot easier, but there, there isn't just one way to do it. We all have different experiences with race, with identity, and we bring those different experiences to the table, and that's what makes it messy. What? So I may have said something today during this podcast that some someone might take an offense with, and yet there are other people who listening to the podcast might go, oh my gosh, that's such an interesting story. I'd really like to see that. We don't all read the same book and walk away with the same message. Like this isn't math. This isn't science. There's not a formula for it. So we got to recognize that, that it's going to be messy. And while we're recognizing that, the fourth tool that I would suggest is that we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable. This is such an important thing, especially in our society today. We need to take responsibility for the language that we use. Freedom of speech carries responsibilities. And we need to take responsibility for the language we use. Number five, I would suggest that we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I know that seems like a really odd thing to say. People will go, well, why would I want to be comfortable being uncomfortable? But the fact of the matter is, is that we are probably uncomfortable at some moment every day of our lives, and yet we work through it. We can do the same with the conversation about race and identity. And number six, the sixth tool is understand that there are realities. Again, I'll say that word again, realities outside of your own experience. Just because you may not have experienced racism, sexism, homophobia, age discrimination, disability indifference, or some other form of discriminatory treatment doesn't mean that those are not realities for other people. We need to listen with empathy. And the seventh and final tool that I would suggest to your listeners is something I heard a a long, long time ago and plays a a big role in, in my own personal life story, and that is practice forgiveness. It has been described as the hardest work you will ever do, but also the most rewarding. All right, give out that website one more time. Sure. It's incognito the play. All one word, incognito the play.com. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Fosberg. Please be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode after listening. This is a very important topic. Pick up Michael's books, take his tips about having challenging conversations in your work and professional life. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Curtis. Thank you for having me on. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. Dream.